0: Thank you for downloading this Hay Festival's podcast. For more information about the Hay Festival's globally and to access our archive, please visit hayfestival.org. Thank you. Um, good evening, everybody. I'm just going to take off my watch so I don't make the worst sin and run over time here. Um, for those of you who've not read the brochure, I'm Sarah Dunant, and by trade I'm a novelist and a writer and a broadcaster, But of course you've all read the brochure because otherwise this place wouldn't be so packed because you're not here for me, you're here for the woman sitting opposite me. And I probably don't need to tell you very much about her because you're here because you already know a lot. So I will say simply very briefly that Patricia Cornwall is one of the most successful and best-selling crime writers ever in the world. She was born in Florida. She's been a crime reporter and a medical assistant to a forensic pathologist before she turned her hand to writing, and she now lives, among other places, in Richmond, Virginia, a city and a state about which you will all know much more than you ever expected to know in your lives, largely because of Patricia Cornwall. Her success as a writer was instantaneous. In 1990, her first book, Postmortem, which introduced Kay Scarpetta, the very postmodern heroine, won every major crime award going, and her place on the bestseller list with the ten novels that have followed, if you're really good at maths, you'll know I've got an extra one because that's one that comes out in September and you haven't read yet, has proved that her rise and rise has been unstoppable. In these books, Kay Scarpetta, aided by her cop buddy, Marino, and her niece, Lucy, and various lovers, the most important of which, Wesley died at the end of the last book, have been through all manner of horror and evil, stalking criminals who, in many ways, have I just given away something to people? I'm so sorry. Look, this is a crime evening. Take nothing that you hear as truth. And how dare you come here without having read all the books? Not to
1: mention, you don't know if Scarpetta did it or someone else, so. You don't even know if he's really dead yet, because you haven't read the next one.
0: Anyway, through all of this, Garpetta has emerged, if not unbloodied, then largely unbowed, and you still all want more, and more you will get in September with the publication of the new one. More you will also have here tonight, because you are going to get 20 minutes of this session to talk directly to Patricia Cornwall, but I get the first half hour to put, I hope, some of the questions that you might have. Um, Patricia, if one looks at your CV, it reads... Crime writer, uh, I'm sorry, crime reporter, assistant to a forensic pathologist, and then crime writer. It looks more like a game plan than a CV. It, it was a game plan,
1: um, except that when I was when I was graduating from college and I knew that I wanted to be a novelist, I never thought of writing about crime. I had absolutely no interest in crime. In fact, I I grew up in a, a little town in North Carolina where literally when they would publish the North Carolina crime statistics every year, and they'd get to the little town of Montreat, it would be zero, 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 zero across the board, there was never any crime, which I think is a little bit, uh, may have something to do with why when I first became exposed to it, I was so like, horrified and got just kind of electrified and never let go of the whole thing. But after I left journalism and did Mrs. Billy Graham's biography, which was not, would not be part of a normal architectural structure for building a life of a crime writer. Um, to write the biography of Mrs. Billy Graham. But after I did that and decided to write about crime, I did very deliberately go to the chief medical examiner's office in Richmond and interview a forensic pathologist and decide after three hours of sitting in that conference room and and taking a tour through the morgue, which was empty and quiet at that moment. It's always actually rather quiet, but it was empty (laughs) at the moment. that I said, I want to come back here and learn about this And for any of you who want to be writers um, or even get much done in life at all, I'll tell you a little secret. Make yourself useful. And this includes if you meet somebody you'd like to get to know in a close way. Make yourself useful in some way. And I, I thought I would like to, you know, I asked the chief medical examiner, is there any work you need done here? And he got me involved in doing some scientific writing, which led into computer work and other things. So were you clocking up plots in your head? Um, yes, in fact, in the w- I worked there ended up working there six years. I originally thought I would just do research there for maybe i don't know i don't know how many months until I finished my first crime novel, and that would be the end of it. but although you know you mentioned the instant success, the the real story is that a lot of people don't realize. That even though Post Mortem did so well, I have to tell you that it wasn't my first book. I wrote three crime novels before that.
0: In the drawer, in they, the, of the drawer, and
1: they should be there. They are really bad. You know, I wrote <laughs> three crime novels, and next thing you know, I'd been down there four years, had three rejected books. I didn't have an agent. I didn't have anybody. Um, and then I wrote postmortem, and, and that didn't. It was rejected by seven major New York publishing houses. That would not have happened. they great Britain bankrupt, yeah. um, Because <laughs> Great Britain, the publishing house houses have more sense than that. But so, you know, it really was a little slower than it seems, and then it, it did take off.
0: Okay, um, let's do the RUK Scarpetta question yes. now. She, she really gets mad when people say that. <laughs> she uh, takes great exception to it. No, but, but because I was going to say that, you see, sitting next She to you, thinks she's me. <laughs> you ought to see her with my charge card when I'm not looking, let me tell you. She's got my signature down pat. So. But it, you see, if I was going to describe her and hadn't met you, I would describe a blonde, good-looking woman who starts out in her 30s... Give her, her, her a 30s, little champagne. now and... in her 40s. <laughs> you know? um, I would also describe a skilled, professional determined, lonely but capable and powerful woman. So tell us where she and you divide. That's a good question. There
1: actually are a lot of similarities and you would expect there to be if you're writing about a protagonist for, I mean, I'm now about to start my 11th book and you know, you're telling it in the first person point of view so I have to know enough to say or think this is what she would do or ask what she, she would do, this is how she feels. Where we are similar is we would have the same sensibilities, the same opinions. We probably have a lot of the same emotional makeup. The same things would make us angry. And um, most people, fortunately, don't see me angry, but I can be rather fierce when I, when I need to be, and so can she. Um, both can be very assertive and that, that sort of thing, very strong in many ways. But where we're different is I am not a forensic pathologist. I'm not a lawyer. I don't have that that very beautiful, pristine, scientific mind that she has. I mean, if it were me doing the autopsy and, and I couldn't figure it out, I'd just make it up because um, I'm a fiction writer and that's why that will never happen. And so there is there is that difference. What One of the things I really admire about her, and she's a role model for me too. I mean, in many ways I'd like to be more like her than like myself sometimes, um, is that disciplined thinking where she can think something and then live very much accordingly. Whereas you have to remember, I am a creative writer. Um, I was an English major. Um, I avoided, I dropped computer science after the first day and only took chemistry and astronomy because I had to. And in fact, I never did understand relativity. It was, it was a disaster. Scarpetta probably got all that the first time. So there are, there are those differences. I'm also not Catholic. Um, So she has a, a lot of things in her programming that would make her different from me and I'm glad otherwise it would not be real comfortable for me to write about.
0: One of the things that comes over very powerfully about her and it's an emotional thing rather than an intellectual thing is what it's like to live as a woman alone and uh, here I kind of feel I almost know you even if I don't because it's very difficult to write about this stuff and it's a mixture of a woman who is both lonely but capable and at ease with being sometimes yeah. lonely. Have you been... I'm not asking you a personal question about your life now, actually. I'm asking about, in a sense, your past or your childhood, because you seem to have a very key understanding, both of loneliness and how you can be a personality within it, despite and because of it.
1: I I was very lonely as a child. When my parents separated, when I uh, lived down in Miami, my mother moved my two brothers and me to North Carolina... The little town, again, that had the zero crime rate, also had zero little girls and the only little boys running around who put up with me for a while and then didn 't like me playing with them anymore in um, baseball and all these other fun things and It was lonely i didn 't have any friends when I was little it 's mostly a retirement community and and so I learned in, you know i didn 't have a father and around either, so I learned at an early age to be very self sufficient and create an interior world. My creativity allowed me to do that. I could make up stories and poetry and draw pictures and um, do all sorts of things that, that caused me to have a certain amount of self-sufficiency. And I think that I relate to that kind of aloneness in Scarpetta because she had a very similar background. And although she, she filled hers more with, with science and wanting to be a doctor and all those things that you know about her, but uh, I, I think we can relate to of, of having a deficit that causes you to create something more in your life than the average person has. I think the other thing that I would relate to, and, and many of you may as well, that I think Scarpetta feels as, as a professional woman who goes out and has to go head-to-head with many difficult people, in many instances what can be a, a very male world, the, the law enforcement world that, that she walks in, um, is, is not so much the aloneness as wanting more to be understood, particularly wanting men to understand that even if you're a woman, it doesn't mean they can't relate to you, and that you all can't be compatriots and have a simpatico relationship like she has with Marino. And and I have this happen a lot as an author. Some of us were talking about this earlier today where I very typically will have men come up to me in line and say, my wife reads your books. And I always want to say, you know, why don't you? And well, I don't usually read da-da-da-da-da. And I always say, look, you know, if you sat next to Scarpetta on a plane, I bet you you'd like her. You know, you probably wouldn't find her boring. And so I always say to the men, especially, you know, give me a chance. I think you'll find that
0: this is not to be stereotyped, Hmm. and she definitely faces that as well. It's interesting you talk about that, because I used that terrible, trendy word, postmodern at the beginning to describe her. but I think it's actually a good word in this context, because around the time that you started writing Postmortem, there were a lot of women writers writing crime books from a deliberately female perspective, and they had, in a sense, a feminist agenda. They wanted to talk about what it was like being a woman. What it seemed to me that Scarpetta does and did, historically as well as literally in the books, is to sort of say, yes, I'm a professional, yes, I'm a woman, but I don't come in with a feminist agenda. That's not what these books are about. And presumably, that was very conscious on your part. Well, it is, it's
1: also, it's really the way I think. I believe Scarpetta is the embodiment of an enlightened person. And an enlightened person is not about gender uh, and doesn't go around uh, waving the Crusaders flag, at least that's not what I'm comfortable doing what she would feel is, particularly like if, if a man underestimated, I had a, the very first bookstore that did a book signing for me for post-mortem, and I started to call it postmodern. You're going to really screw me up now. <laughs> but uh, in Richmond, a book signing, which, by the way, nobody showed up to, because that's how things were in the beginning. He, this guy read post-mortem. <laughs> he said to me afterwards, he said, you know, it disturbed me so much that this character was a woman that I went back and I reread the book and I replaced all the pronouns with he to see if it felt more comfortable and that really (laughs) messed me up too. And I said, well, why did you have such a hard time with this? And he said, because I just can't envision a woman doing what she does for a living. And so what I say to that is this is not really a gender issue or something to be inflamed about. It's a matter of simply urging people along to see something that they haven't seen before and to understand it. It doesn't have to be antagonistic. This guy was as nice as he could be, but he wasn't used to thinking of a woman doing what Scarpetta does and being like her. Now he has no trouble with that. And so that's why I don't really get into all this feminist um, business in a militaristic or, uh, you know, aggressive way. Because I really believe a lot of times just people don't understand. And And that's why I say to the people that don't, you know, read 10 pages and I bet you get beyond it. And if you don't, that's fine.
0: And yet what was really interesting about Postmortem is although she wasn't a feminist heroine, it was real feminist territory that that book looked at because the book was a, a quite chilling and brilliant reconstruction of a series of serial killer rapes and murders on young women. Um, and it came out at a time when serial killing and rapes and murders of young women was in a sense all the rage in all the news, not just in the news, but in a lot of the male imaginations of crime writers, the people who were creating serial killers. So you were treading on very delicate ground there. Did you think that? Did you think, I want to step in here with this subject and do this? No, I
1: didn't, because I didn't come at it from a literary point of view in terms of this is a point I want to make in a book. I came at it from the perspective of somebody who lived with the reality of crime. I was working in a medical examiner's office. I'd been there over four years by then. I'd seen, I'd seen rape murders and strangulations and child abuse and, you know, just anything imaginable. And so what actually gave me the inspiration for postmortem mortem um, was that we, while I was there and I was contemplating beginning a fourth book when the first three hadn't worked, we, we began to have um, a series of, of serial rape strangulations in the city And after the second one occurred, and it actually was a woman doctor who was murdered, I thought, what would Scarpetta do if she were working these cases? How would she handle something like this? And that was the genesis of my coming up with something, not those same cases, but something that was similar to see what she would do. And the the truth is, I I think my, my perspective and my motive has been more to show you the reality of violence than to show you the reality of a woman working in a world like that, because for me where we get off track, particularly in the area of of making entertainment out of violence, is that people don't really... It's not real to them. It's an abstraction. The blood is fake. It's, It's all something that is meant to entertain a guessing game. And I wanted to show you... If you want to see death, let me show you how ugly it really
0: is. What did you want to say about fear, though? Because the thing about Postmortem is it is an incredibly scary book. And I read it on my own in my house, and I was literally terrified. And it wasn't just that I was terrified of the violence. I was terrified of something much bleaker in the philosophy, which was in a sense, the book doesn't have a happy ending. I mean, the bad guy gets done and Scarpetta gets away. But there is a feeling that the fear remains. The message of the book seemed to me, it doesn't matter how many locks you put on your windows, girls, there is still somebody out there waiting to get in. Is that what you feel? I think that the fear that I touch
1: on in that book is the absolute randomness of crimes like that. People ask me often, why do you write so much about, quote, serial killers, the psychopaths, versus crimes that might have motives that you could figure out and maybe the the victim and the killer knew each other. The reason I do, there are two reasons. One, because the most frightening thing is to be picked by a predator who doesn't even know your name. It's just somebody who, you know, the periscope turns on you and you can almost hear the the blip of the radar screen heating up as this person fixes on somebody who's a symbol of something and he doesn't, or he or she doesn't even know the person's name. That is very frightening to me. And I think it's frightening to most people. And there's not a whole lot of precaution you can take to prevent it because it's like a shark attack. I mean, someone walking through a mall parking lot, you know, and Ted Bundy says, can you help me carry this to my car? And he's got a cast on his arm. Well, that's
0: and these people appeal to the good in you, and you say, sure, I'll help you, and then, you know, something bad happens. But it's also statistically very small, that likelihood, and yet women very often live in continual fear of it, and I suppose the question is, what responsibility do we as novelists have to help that fear or alleviate it, or maybe we don't, you know, maybe we just tell it like we see it. Well, I think that one thing you can do is, I mean, this does happen. It's
1: not like we just make this up. It's not like Frankenstein. I mean, these kinds of, of deaths of assaults and so on are very real. And so I think for one thing, the more people are educated about it and understand it, that you can you can have a little bit of prevention going on. I mean if I think that once you know some of the ways people approach victims in cases like this, you can be a little more mindful that something's not quite right about why somebody is asking you to do this or, or if someone's, you know, if you're out walking and someone stops his car and says, "Can you tell me what time it is?" And you tell him. He says, "I'm sorry. What did you say?" And it's like he's trying to get you to get closer to the window, and your little antenna goes up and says, "I'm not getting any closer to that car." You know, you start getting an instinct because you know of things that people have done in the past that have worked. I do believe that that by letting people know, that's helpful. Um, I just I also think there's a bit of a catharsis by writing about something like that and by reading it and having some sort of of of, you know. You have the randomness and what seems so hopeless and to have some measure of justice and decency restored in the end that helps give us a little bit of a catharsis for a fear that we can 't just make go away. Um, we, I mean it 's just like this. I, I just come here yesterday and i 'm reading about the, the uh, assault, in, was it Canterbury, the woman who was strangled, you know found beneath the hedge or something like that. This is something that strikes a
0: chord in everybody let 's talk about the bodies on the slab. Um, You have said often in trying to analyse the success of Scarpetta that that, uh, forensic pathology is the kind of new magic, and I I think you're absolutely right, that they are the magicians, they have answers that Sherlock Holmes once had about a footprint. We have it in a much more technological, scientific way. But there's something also very emotional going on in the scenes between Scarpetta and the bodies. And it's something, and, and this is a bigger question, really, it's to do with... There is an accusation about writing forensic crime that says... This is another kind of wirism. You don't show the violence. You stick the body on the table, and by examining the wounds, you do something, in a sense, more cunning. You ask the reader to activate their own imagination to go back into the crime that committed that. It seems to me what Scarpetta does with her victims, almost to guard against that accusation, is to give them a kind of care and tenderness, which is almost trying to make up for what was done to them. Now, how far is that what you felt, working with bodies, and how far is that the small voice in you aware of an accusation that this might be voyeuristic? That-
1: well, I hear that a lot about the voyeurism or morbidity or whatever. And, um, it, but if you've actually worked in the environment and you've been around the cases and you've been around the bodies, you don't feel that way, and that's not what's going on. It's not a voyeurism. What it's really about is, with, with Scarpetta, if... She, her, she feels the wounds, and the wounds speak to her, and, and you become preoccupied with the wounds, the pain, what was done to somebody, and not with the excitement and the lust of the killer, although you will see the imprint of that in, in, in the marks that this person leaves. But if you've been around the bodies, what happens is you become very victim-oriented, and you, you can't help but have feelings about it. You become simpatico. Um, you become, you're the only person that dead person can talk to. She makes the dead speak to her. They have no other advocate. you know in the body you can read something in the paper about a real case, and you can imagine if that is someone you love or, or God forbid if it were even you, you have no advocate really other than that doctor that tends to you last and what he or she determines from your your tissue responses, your injuries, your clothing, the, whatever's under your fingernails what 's in your hair um, what is in your blood alcohol, God knows what, determines something that that begins to allow you, the dead, to speak and say, this is what happened to me. And I think everybody wants to believe that at the end of the day, somebody hears what happened to us, that we have something to say, that we don't want to die in silence and not have it known, what our last moments were like, what was done. That's part of our great hope for justice and decency. And if you look at it that way, it, it doesn't seem voyeuristic, it really seems very caring. It's not pretty, and it's, it's a tremendous violation of privacy. I mean, the dead have no privacy. Everything is exposed, particularly if it goes to court. But those, the caretakers like Scarpetta, are not being voyeuristic when they're exploring those very injured in private parts of you. But we're reading over her shoulder into the wounds. It's quite hard to keep that but, balance. That's true, sense. but she's not showing it to you in a salacious way. She's not showing it to you as if to say, you know gosh, isn't this a great-looking body line here, or um, to, to recreate things in a way that are unseemly. It's to show you, as an archaeologist, with recreated civilization and try to show you the person who dropped that coin last and why it ended up there and what happened to the individual after he walked away. It's to recreate a life and help us understand it better and to bring about some sense, not only of justice for the victim,
0: but a peace of mind for the, those who are left behind. Let's talk about her sidekicks. Let's talk about Merino's. I cannot imagine a more unattractive, attractive character than Marina. Here is a guy, aesthetically There, there definitely challenged. is no sexual tension between <laughs> them, I can tell you that. Emotionally a mess.
1: Not on her part, anyway. Fat,
0: unhealthy, homophobic, racist, sexist. I almost don't know what the question I want to ask is, except clearly... Except, like, why the hell is he here? Well, Well, clearly he is <laughs> deliberately here, yes. As what? as a foil to her, as the only person in some ways that she gets really close to a lot of the oh, time. Oh, no. See, Marino's us. Marino is the
1: embodiment of society. Marino is all... He's not us. me. No, but think about it. I'm not you. I'm not saying you, but Marino, by and large, embodies a lot of the prejudices and small-mindedness of people that I think Scarpetta, as an enlightened human being, shines as a foil to whether it's the homophobia or the racism or the sexism or I mean Marino is constantly having to go to classes to overcome all his political incorrect you know incorrectness. Um, The the police department spends a fortune on that and it gets him nowhere and it's it's not really because he's a mean-spirited person or that he really believes the things that the, the really bigoted stuff that he says it's really more of ignorance and of kind of cruising along life and accepting things and then you're confronted where a prejudice has a face put on it, whether it's Lucy or another black officer or a Dr. Scarpetta who's a woman doctor, suddenly these things that you've made fun of have a face and you kind of gasp and you go, oh my god, I can't say that anymore. I mean, because I know this person and I feel this way. Well, and it's that's taking him
0: a long time, isn't but it? Actually,
1: he, he, you know, if, he, if, you really, if you read carefully in the later books, he, makes, he really kind of jerks people's chains a lot, as we say back in the States, because he He's not as prejudiced as he appears to be. He has changed a lot since he and Scarpetta have been friends, and he's been a good influence on her, too, in the sense that I think he's loosened her up in some ways, mm-hmm. because she could get a little bit on her high horse in the earlier days, and, and I think that, you know, and he's had to have words with her at times as well. Well, they're
0: both loners, aren't they? Very powerfully. I mean, he's got a broken family behind him, but and you he feel that he lives great success for He with job. His love
1: life, yeah. that's for sure, you know. He,
0: he, uh, I'm sorry, but what? But you <laughs> no, tell us more about his love life. No, you feel. I don't want to know about it. Really, his job. They both have a sense of campaigning and vision, even though the vision may be different. They're both totally dedicated to it. They're they're dedicated. They're both. They're the driven. People. They're
1: driven, and they both have great passion. Um, you know, they have very strong feelings about what they do and about fighting the fight that that they carry on and their own sense of decency. I mean, Marino, for example, is the sort of person that. He might have a prejudice or even, you know, perpetrate an unfairness of some kind. But once he really saw it, he'd be horrified because he really is a good, good soul. And that's what I mean, that I think by and large Marino is us, that I think that most of us when we make mistakes or, or make judgments that we shouldn't, and I do it too, and then it, when I think about it for a minute or if I get confronted with it, the decency in me says, oh my God, I can't believe I said that. That's not what I meant at all. That's not how I feel. It's kind of like old programming. And so I think that's what he is. What
0: about Lucy? Because on paper, Lucy has a really rough life. She has been really put through a meat mincer since she was that admittedly burdened by intelligence 10-year-old, but still a largely happy 10-year-old. I was hoping everybody
1: would think that was me, but it's not true. I wasn't burdened (laughs) that much by intelligence.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, she knew a lot more about computers than you did, actually. (laughs) She sure did and still does. But um, life has been very tough to her. Why have you put her through so much?
1: Well, it's, you know, that's a hard thing to say except that, you know, I do think I relate a little bit to what it was like for her growing up, feeling different from other people. Even though I was doing the creative work, not programming computers and making robots and doing all those things that she did, I also know what it's like to be off in your own world doing things to compensate for an emptiness that's in your own house, which is what she felt growing up. and. You know, I often thought when I was a child, I mean, wouldn't you have loved it if you were a Lucy, if you'd had an aunt like Scarpetta who would come Hmm. to your rescue? That's kind of like the great pipe dream, and I would have loved to have had an aunt like that myself. So, but in terms of her struggles, I I think that she is very much a modern young woman. I think that in a way, the generation after Scarpetta even has a harder time because they're left with a legacy of it's okay to be an astronaut, and so they go out there and they're allowed to be an astronaut, but yet it really isn't okay either. There's still, you run into, you know, you bite into it and it's soft for a minute and then you break your tooth. And that's very true. I mean, if you get involved with law enforcement agencies like the, you know, federal bureaus and so forth, FBI, ATF, whatever, it seems like it's A-OK to be a modern 24-year-old woman out there flying helicopters and doing all the things that Lucy does, but it really still isn't okay. You're invited to come to the party, but nobody wants to wait on you and everybody has comments to make, and they give you a rough time. And so I think that she is an embodiment of a different generation um, of... not even necessarily a woman, but people who go out and do something that historically they weren't allowed to do, and it seems like it's supposed to be okay, but the reality is it's still pretty hard.
0: She's also gay, and she's very defiantly and articulately gay. And in the last few books... It's nice to hear that Marino's softening a bit, but in the last few books, she and Marino... He's jealous of her girlfriends. That's what his problem is. (laughs) It's not exactly enlightened, (laughs) is it? They're a lot better looking than he is. But you've activated them into some really fierce, passionate rows where he's lost. He's basically lost. She's taken him apart and she's chucked him around the walls with his prejudice. Now, um, the the one thing that some people will know about you, and it's from an incident that happened in your life, is that you have had some gay affair in your life. Now, And I bring this up not to ask you about your personal life, because in a sense, when it happened, uh, it's a dramatic story. You were targeted by an FBI agent who accused you of having an affair with his wife, and the press went for you, and you did a very brave thing. You just said, yep fine i did it it's over let me alone there's always, there's a no-win situation with the press in your country and in our country but you, you essentially you did the one thing they couldn't deal with which you came out front and you did it and you left it and they had nothing else to say to you but since then i've watched lucy just go for it in your books in a way that's made me think fiction writers have a place to answer back where nobody can beat them which is they can use their fiction to say things in a way which means even if the press won't listen to you, other people will hear me loud and clear. Now, am I putting you on the couch too much? Or it, can, can you remember that hour's where's of champagne? <laughs> um, no, I, I think that
1: what's important with Lucy, where that particular issue is concerned, whether you're talking about her being gay or has she, were she of any other persuasion that made her a little bit upstream in certain terms of not quite going, going with the flow of things. Is that this is a character, and, and what I really love about this is this is a character you met when she was 10 years old, if you read Postmortem, when she was the, the pudgy little computer nerd who was a brat but very disturbed and lonely and very needy and really was a wonderful child. And then you met her again a little bit later, several other times in later books. And by then you know this person, and then you find out later that she's gay, which I didn't know either until she walked into the room when she was, however, in the body farm, I guess it was. And then I went, oh my gosh, well, there you go. And whatever you are is fine with me. I don't care. So, but the point of it is, again, you're putting a face on a prejudice for people, whether she's gay or whether she were an African-American or Asian or of a religion that was different and maybe offbeat compared to you and me. How can you suddenly define that person by that one thing when you've known her before and you know so much else about her? And I think that's probably the point that, that I make um, at, this, you know, at this stage of things with, with her and later books is, listen, this lady flies helicopters. Yep. You know, I mean, she's, she's brilliant, she's pretty, she's athletic, she's a good person. And are you only going to think of her as just being gay? Mm. And, and so, and, and that's, I think, the way, I imagine a lot of people in this room can relate to being pegged as any one thing. And it's, it's very dehumanizing. I mean, if you really push it to the limit, that's what the Nazis did. You know, where you reduce somebody to one thing and make it some sort of stigma that that's, that's causes you to say they're not worthy to live. And if there's anything in this world that I'm opposed to, it's any kind of prejudice or discrimination that takes away the humanity from people.
0: Well, you've given her both a kind of elegance and a passion and an energy in those later books, which I think is very powerful to read. And, um, and I think it's a great tribute to her or you, whichever one was writing whom there, because she really has emerged.
1: Don't tell her she was writing it, because she'll ask for my royalties. Really, I'm yes. trying to, I've been trying to figure out ways not to pay those characters for a long time now. <laughs> um, but, well, she's been a lot of fun, and I'm liking it as she gets older, and I think it's going to be interesting to see you know, how she and Scarpetta relate as more time goes by. And in fact, in the book that I'm getting ready to start, I'll just you know, clue you in on a little secret. I'm pretty sure what I'm going to do is move her to the ATF uh, office in Richmond and so that she and Scarpetta will be in the same city working their own careers, and God knows what kind of trouble they'll get into, but that should be kind of fun.
0: Let's talk about the villains. Um, the books are peopled by truly nightmarish villains, um, very often faceless. We quite often see very little of them. Their fear is built up partly, partly by their absence. They are often sick and deranged. They're uh, intent on quite sadistic crimes. I suppose the classic example of them is Galt and his accomplice, Carrie, um, who are largely irredeemable figures. And the message is, you know, even if you put them away, as you do put Carrie away in one book, they'll get out. They'll get out and come back and get you. Um, How far the vision that I get of America from reading your books is of a country in great fear and under great threat and not at all convinced that the law and order system of their society is going to get them through. That in a sense, evil is back on the streets and they don't know what to do about it. How far is that you looking at America or you reflecting America? I think that
1: um, I do view America that way. I think that um, America I, th- I think that the people in the United States that we are we have accepted violence as a way of life. And when you think about how our country was founded, let's let's start with the fact that you all sent all the crappy people in our country, okay? So what we the hell We sent worse ones expect? to Australia actually. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so, but anyway, we, it, we we were born in America, so to speak with a gun in our hands going I mean it's amazing. I I've, I've been doing some archaeological uh, research at Jamestown for this new book—the one that I haven't started writing yet, but that eventually I hope I'll do—and one of the things, I mean, it's just you're finding ammunition and flintlocks and gun pieces and parts and arrow tips. I mean, that's all you see. And their their metal, their iron helmets. And I mean, these these people spent no- did nothing but walk around with the long fuses burning of their muskets. You know, the smoke rising up, thinking the Indians hadn't figured that one out yet. You know, you see little puffs of smoke going through the trees. Hey, man, what does that mean? So, but he, that it's just—it's profound to see that we began with just fighting for good, I mean, obviously for self-defense and self, for survival and all that, but we seem to, America, violence is such a way of life, and we accept it as a way of life, and it's absolutely aberrant. Um, I mean, I wish we didn't
0: have all the firearms that we have in the United States. But you're pinpointing something else as well as violence. You're pinpointing almost evil, aren't you? I mean, I think in the very well, first book, Scarpetta says to a very young Lucy, some people just choose evil. Mm-hmm. There are people who are evil, and, and they cannot
1: be redeemed. There are clearly people who are evil. Um, the, the Ted Bundy types, I mean, you could look at a photograph of Ted Bundy and look in his eyes. That was an evil, evil man. And, you know, there's even a verse in the Bible that talks about God gave them up to their lusts. And, you know, that's a very dramatic way of saying that I think people make choices. And I think over a period of time, particularly you may even have genetic you know, wiring that gives you more propensity this way, I don't know. But people make choices, and eventually they don't feel anything anymore except the overwhelming, rapacious, you know, need they have to create destruction. And I will add that one thing, I'll give you a little definition, a formula in life that always applies, and you, you can pull it out of your back pocket when you have a question about motive, everything is about power. And truly evil people are all about the abuse of power. They become God in an, in an abusive, cruel, and awful way. And the people who give themselves up to that, I think after a point, they they, they get to where they can't go
0: back. But I think the problem, well, I have a number of problems. My liberal spine here is uh, crawling here. I mean, it's partly to do with the fact that it's a big debate here about what you do about violence and whether or not you have a rising population of criminals or how you cope with it. But I want to put it on a more fictional level here, actually, which is, if you don't believe in redemption, then what hope is there? And I want to sort of suggest that one of the things I felt reading progressively through your books, and I really love them, I have huge admiration for them, is I'm watching your characters suffer a great deal and become worn down by the levels of hate and evil with which they're surrounded. And in certain cases, in the last couple of books, because of what's done to them, coping by hating themselves back, I mean, by feeling hatred back, and it's a big question, isn't it? If art doesn't offer redemption, it doesn't offer hope.
1: I think that you can offer redemption, but I, I guess I do it realistically. And it's, in, you know, that's, I'm very fortunate that I have a series because I can do things over a period of time. And for example, in Point of Origin, which I think has just come out in paperback here, things get worn pretty thin. I mean, it looks like when you get to the end of that book, you almost have to wonder how beaten down everybody is. There is some triumph in the end, without a doubt. I mean, Lucy gets her in Scarpetta have a bit of vindication in the end with their destruction of the evil force. But still, the price they've paid in the process yes. is devastating. Well, when you read my, the new one that will be out here in September, Black Notice, um, they are at the thinnest point of their fabric. I mean, they're almost to the point of just ripping apart. But there is redemption, and there is, you will see at the end of the book how they survive and turn things around. And the reason I feel okay about doing that about even pushing him almost over the brink, is because that's what we, that's that's us. I mean, it happens to us. All of us have periods in our lives where you feel like, I can't take anymore. And I don't care on what scale it is, whether it's me and it's on a more visible scale or whether it's some of you that maybe only you know about episodes where things happen at work or in your family and you're met with gross unfairness or you get burglarized or victimized by crime in some way and you, you feel it pulling at you it's like Nietzsche said be careful who you choose as an enemy because that's who you become most like you feel that that gravity pulling you saying come on and be like us we just hurt you made you feel bad so why don't you go out and hurt somebody else and make them feel bad and that's that's the true challenge is to not become like those dark forces that afflict you is to rise above it and do better and you'll see in black notice there's a very big test there particularly with Lucy to become like those who have caused her so much suffering And I really like to explore that in my writing because I think that's reality. I think every single one of us have to face that to some degree on a daily basis.
0: It's your turn. I've got tons more questions, but we've only got 20 minutes. Oh gosh. Now what you have to do, there's a technical problem. You have to wait for the microphone. There's a gentleman there. Somebody will bring you a microphone. Gentleman there. Thanks. Um, if and when there's a film of uh, one of those Scarpetta novels, who, who do you want to play Scarpetta?
1: You know, now the film part, that is something that's about worn me down too. I can understand how Scarpetta and all them get a little fed up with crime and bad people. Um, if and when there is a film. Well, first let me just give you a little background because there's been a lot of attempts at the filmmaking and I've spent a lot of time involved with various studios and I'm at a point now where I'm reaching out more in the direction of... of putting something together with a lot more initiative on my own part instead of relying on a big studio because it's so important that I have a lot of say-so in what happens. And I think those of you who are my readers, I hope, will appreciate that because you have a big investment in this as well. I know none of you want to go and watch your favorite character trashed. Um, I mean, really, it would be awful and it would be worse for me, of course, to have to live with that every day with somebody, you know, how that's been depicted and how awful it could be. As far as who would play Scarpetta... You know, I really don't have any, there's not any person that I've al- except for Katherine Hepburn, and she is, I mean, I haven't had the guts to ask her, because I think she's busy and had enough, and she's, you know, uh, but I think she would have made a great Scarpetta, so maybe there's a little something out of sync here that will get self-corrected at some point, but I, I don't have, I'm always, you guys are always welcome to make suggestions, but I don't have any one person that I think should play her
0: gentleman there. Can I have somebody else's hand so I can get you a mic? Anybody else? Um, just there. You've been um, writing about Kay for a number of years. Do you get fed up with her? Or do you resent her in any way? And no. if so, do you think you'll be writing about her in 20 years' time? or?
1: It's hard for me to imagine what I'll be writing about in 20 years. I don't have any plans for not writing about Scarpetta. Um, no, I don't ever get tired of her. I don't ever get disgusted with her. She does wear me out. Um, she really does. I mean, when, I've, when I finish a Scarpetta book, I'm just exhausted. I'm creatively drained. I'm emotionally drained because I'm sure you can feel it in the work. I mean, it takes a lot out of me. I don't just sit around and, and make up a, a, a nice little puzzle for you to solve. I mean, I go in the morgue. and Like with Point of Origin, s- since you have access to that here now, you know, I went to fire scenes, and I, I, s- I spent a lot of time Learning the very things that you read in there. I went to Kirby Forensic Psychiatric Hospital in New York. I went there twice, and that was a very frightening experience um, to go in and, and to to feel an environment that's so permeated by people, many of whom are were really very evil people. You could feel it. I mean, I, I uh, was on the fourth floor where the men's ward. As a forensic psychologist, took me up for a tour, and the. The guy made a mistake in the schedule, and he thought the floor was empty because all the male inmates were down at lunch, and he misjudged it and brought me up just as they were all coming back. And so all of a sudden, all these guys are coming out on the floor, and some of them are in full restraints, and some of them aren't. And it was just this, I mean, it was really a very dangerous situation because there were very few people that could have stopped any of them from doing something. And I have never seen such evil eyes in my life as some of these people that were, I mean, I really, it was probably the most unnerving bit of research I've ever done so when you read my books, though, you can feel that I'm I have done something for you to spare you having to do that for yourself but I'm sharing the experience and so it wears me out I'm, I'm done and I'm exhausted and so I'm I'm more worried that she's going to fire me and hire somebody else you've done get so tired you know she said what's your problem I recover from it take a vacation for a week <laughs> so but no I, I don't get tired of her Uh, hi. Oh.
0: Yeah. Uh, hello. I was fascinated to hear that you. Thank you. I was fascinated to hear you, your overnight success took so many years and three failed novels. Um, how did you keep your self
1: motivation, your re- self regard, and belief that you'd make it in the end? I don't know that I ever believed I would make it in the end. I think what kept me going is it's it's kind of like you know. Well, I'll give you a little story. One day I was down in the morgue, and we used to get crickets down there. I don't know, do you have crickets over here? Or did you send those all to our country, too? <laughs> um, this cricket's down there singing away, making this little raspy noise. And my, my medical examiner friend was, I mean, imagine you've got a murder victim down there, really big things to worry about, but she's determined to get this cricket because she hates crickets. And so she's going after this cricket. And I, I said, dear, why? It, it, look, it's, it's doing the only thing it knows how to do. It only knows how to make that pitiful little noise, leave it alone. So that's me. I only know how to make my own little pitiful noise, and when nobody would publish it, I just like that cricket. I kept on singing, hoping somebody wasn't going to squash me for good, because I really just don't know anything else to do. It's who I am. I didn't choose to be a writer because I thought it was a nice profession. I've been writing ever since I was a little kid, and it's really the only song that I really and truly know how to sing. It's my voice. So I just kept on trying, and if I hadn't made it as a novelist, in fact, when Postmortem got rejected the first seven times... I was, started taking the train and looking for journalism jobs again, because I, I would, would have gone back to some s- form of writing. Um, so that's, I'd like to tell you that I'm such a trooper, but I just don't know what else to do. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Lady there. Thank you.
1: No? Not very well. But go ahead. I'll repeat your question if you want to. Try again. There you go. Are there any themes
0: or emotions that you can't actually get Scarpetta, to, uh, to articulate on your behalf that you would like to explore that have ever led you to consider another protagonist?
1: Well, that's, that's a really good question. Oh, probably a lot of things. I mean, there's a lot of careers that are fascinating. I think that, and in fact, she has a friend who's a woman psychiatrist, and I've always, you know, I'd love to, in a third-person point of view, get into somebody like that. Uh, or a a prosecutor, or a judge, or or anything. And I guess, I don't know how many of you are familiar with my other series that I've started. That's the very satirical, uh, the most recent one being Southern Cross. And that's one of the things that is a real... Reward for me when I get to write those books is because it is third person point of view, and I can get into the minds of people that do other things. Like, what is it like to be a cop? What does it feel like to be a little kid? What does it feel like to be, you know, a redneck driving his Jeep Cherokee down the highways of Richmond, Virginia? Well, I can relate to that. The world's full of those in Richmond, Virginia. Um, but so that I do enjoy exploring other what other people, you know, in other professions think and do.
0: Yeah, so on, so it's on. It's working. Into the, like yes.
1: it's, okay. Do you think that the use of uh, forensic psychology, that is to say the uh, psychological profiling of killers based on, on observation of the scenes of crimes and of the injuries of the victims is a useful tool in, in police identification of, in particular, serial killers? I think that... Uh, Profiling, as they call it, when it's done by people who really know what they're doing, I do think it's very useful. It's not a science, but in terms of, of a tool that might lead in the right direction and also can give us more understanding of why these people do what they do and perhaps give us a little more enlightenment about it. Uh, I've, I've known a number of profilers, and I've been exposed to that aspect of law enforcement a great deal. And I have found that, that there is a lot of validity to to the database, it's really you know a study just in human behavior, and just as you can kind of predict what normal people will do in given situations, if you have collected a lot of data and what these aberrant people do, you can go to a crime scene and have some interpretation that perhaps you wouldn't have had before. A good a good uh, example, not a pleasant one, is is for example these uh, predators, the, the psychopaths on those rare occasions when police will arrive at a, at a, at a murder scene and they find like, the head of the victim displayed on a shelf. So the police walk in the room and boom, there's this thing staring them in the face. Well, that, te- that right there is, tells you a lot about whoever did this. I mean, that's, that's, a, very, that's a very deliberate, it's a displaying, it's, it shows a contempt, it shows that this kind of person likes to taunt law, law enforcement. That's not, the, that's not all the crime of somebody who's committed a domestic murder as a rule. Do you see what I mean? So you, can, you, you don't want to say, God, there's got to be this or got to be that, but it can lead them in a direction where they can say, there's a very good chance whoever did this did not even know the victim, or there's a good chance that the, 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 the person did because there seems to be a lot of emotion in this crime.
0: Uh, lady, right in the middle there, please. C- can I have other hands so I can get a microphone to you? And the lady up there, thank you. How, how easy
1: is it for you to do your research? How much do agencies like the FBI welcome you sort of poking? Obviously you knew a lot of already, but poking around into their, what they're doing or what they're thinking about things. By and large, uh, the agencies or law enforcement or scientists or whatever area of research I'm doing, the, the people involved have been extremely generous and open, and I have not had a whole lot of trouble having access to what I need but there's, there's some reasons for that. One, like, you know, like anybody, if you have people judge you based on what you've done before, and if it appears that you work very hard to be accurate and you're not out there trying to bash people, you know, make fools out of the police or the FBI or ATF or whoever it is, then they tend to be accessible. And the other thing is you've got a lot of unsung heroes out there, and the best examples that I can think of are forensic pathologists mm-hmm. and forensic scientists who, I mean, n- nobody thanks you for doing a nice autopsy. You know, it's a very lonely, hard life to be a medical examiner. You never have good news for people, and nobody thanks you for doing a good job, and most people don't have any earthly idea what you do. You're not allowed to talk about your work when you go home and call out of the fence, Hey, Betty, guess what I did today? You know, so it, these people are very appreciative of someone that comes in and is interested in what they do and wants to get it right. Now, there's always going to be exceptions uh, when you're dealing with some bureaucracies that are extremely controlling when it comes to what they want the, the public to think. And now and then, you particularly the military can be kind of difficult when you want to do research with them. Um, a lot of times I've had to go through a, a fair amount of red tape. But as time has gone by, I mean, if you, if you do the right thing and you're decent and fair with people, by and large, they're
0: pretty receptive to you. Presumably, they've been misrepresented before, though, and it's also quite nice for them to realize they'll get a fair deal.
1: At, that's probably true, and I think when they get misrepresented, it's most of the time because people who are writing or working on movies or whatever, they really don't bother yeah. to try to get it right. They don't. It takes a lot of time. It's a lot easier to make assumptions and to just... You know make up your own little scenario than to sit down to to spend a week riding with the same police officer to try to understand what his life is like and if you're willing to do that then you will find a lot of people are receptive to you if you're trying to do something like that great lady
0: there thank you mine is a slightly frivolous question actually i don't want to spoil the ending of point of origin for people who haven't actually read it but uh, Scarpetta's getting older and some of us... Have actually, been... she hadn't
1: aged a whole lot, if you really look at well, it. Well, not get... that. <laughs> a lot of people ask me about that. I do it with smoke and mirrors. Well, that, that's good. <laughs> that's good. Uh, some of us would be very anxious that you were actually feeling that perhaps this was the end of her romantic interests, and
0: uh, uh, I hope that's not well, the Well, just
1: age? Uh, well, quite. <laughs> I hope not, because I'm catching up with her real fast. <laughs> um, no, as a matter of fact, in Black Notice, w- again, which comes out in September, I had talked to you about something you can't get yet, um, she, she really kind of breaks bad in that book. I recommend that you get it as soon as you can because you will see Scarpetta has, is doing many things that you might not expect, is acting out a little bit. She's not post-mortem or post-modern, but post-Benton, I guess. So, no, I think actually she uh, is going to do quite the opposite. Um, she actually, I mean, she's been in a very steady relationship for a long time. We haven't, in fact, we've never seen her really totally unattached. I mean, she's, she's always been with somebody, but they were kind of the, the sort of relationships you might have expected that she would be in, and she, she surprises you a little bit in Black Notice. Um, she surprised me a little bit. I, it took me a long time to get used to writing some of those scenes. I'm going to tell you what. So That should keep you going for a few months. <laughs> if she's getting older, God knows what she's going to be like when she's 60, because she's hell, in, hell on wheels in this new book, I'll tell you. <laughs>
0: Lady there. Don't forget,
1: she really knows anatomy well. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Uh, I understand you have a charitable education foundation. Could
0: you tell us a little more about it, please?
1: Um, Yes, I have... Well, I went to a college in North Carolina called Davidson um, near Charlotte, and I have a scholarship there that awards uh, creative writing awards every year to students. It's... um, I gave a million dollars to the school to endow the scholarship, and every year two students are chosen. Um, and I think we're probably up to close to 20 students by now. So that's a very important thing to offer opportunities to young people who really, really want to be writers and are talented and need some encouragement and need some reward for for that direction in their in their life and for that ability. There's and there's a number of other things. I'm also I don't really have a foundation, but I have a number of different causes, um, and in addition to that, literacy is a very important thing to me, and I've donated a lot of resources and my time back in the States to literacy efforts, which are, which are especially important in America because we have a, a shockingly high illiteracy rate, and again, it goes back to those people you sent over there a long time ago, <laughs> and of who I'm sure I'm one of them. Anyway, that's, to me, if you can't read, you're, you're held hostage. I mean and it also there is a correlation uh, there can be any anyway between violence and crime and people who have are not able to read and cannot function in society through any other means except some of the the ways that they choose and also the frustration and anger that is a result of not being able to read and you can really see this in kids in school you know we have such a trouble with juvenile violence I mean that's a problem everywhere but back in the states especially it's people feel helpless, they don't even know what to do about it anymore. And I've sat in on a lot of juvenile court cases and you can see these kids and it's a pattern. You know, They're in the second or third or fourth grade and suddenly their grades are going down. Then they start cutting classes and then they're getting in trouble and no one bothers. And then you find out that they're uh, reading disabled or learning disabled and it's all about they can't read. And what that, how their lives completely go off track because they can't read and the shame that's involved in it and the anger and the frustration. So that's something that, that really means a lot to me and that I hope I can have more influence in. So, but there's, there's a lot of things, and the bottom line of all of it, and I would say this to all of you in this room, is that, that we should always be of a mindset of trying to give back. To, if we have anything that we've been given, if we can make a difference in any way, and you don't have to have millions of dollars to give it away. It's all about a moment or a penny or a dollar, or a word. You start with what little piece you have, and you might change a life. And if you change even one life on this earth, then your being here is worth it.
0: Does anybody want to follow that? <laughs> because it is one minute to go to ten past seven, and we have to be out of Let's here get then. he got the gentleman back there. He's raised oh. his hand Oh, no. You can top that. <laughs> Quickly, sir. Thank you. I don't mean to cramp your style. Did you feel that... Um, you have to write Hornet's Nest to prove to yourself or to prove to your readers that you could write about someone other than Skate better?
1: No, that's a good question. I, I actually did it because that's another voice I have that people don't get to hear. First of all, I was a journalist, and I, I can very much relate to Andy Brazil, and I was a volunteer police officer, and I've ridden with the police for years, and there's a whole skewed perspective and far-side reality if you're out on the street with the police. And I also, shockingly, I know people don't expect it when they read postmortem or postmodern or whatever the hell that book is but i have a sense of humor and i love to laugh and i love love the absurdities of life and so this that series is is an opportunity for me to get to speak in another voice
0: ladies and gentlemen patricia colmore